You're listening to the Passionate DJ Podcast, episode 13. Happy New Year! Passionate DJ Podcast, where it's all about becoming a better DJ through passion and purpose. And now, your host, David Michael. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Passionate DJ Podcast. This is a special, impromptu New Year's Day edition of the podcast. This is uh, fairly last minute. Um, It's Actually, as I record this, it's 2 p.m. on uh, New Year's Eve. So this is uh, kind of uh, about as fresh as it gets as far as uh, podcast episodes go. And I happen to be on vacation in Tennessee, um, where uh, this is kind of our third year doing this, where my uh, family gets together at a lake house here in Tennessee that my fiance's mother's company owns that we kind of have access to. And it uh, gives me a lot of time to really reflect reflect on the year and just kind of hang out in a nice place, get away from things for a while. Uh, but I couldn't resist doing another episode of the podcast. This has been on my mind and I just, I've had so much going on that I haven't had time to crank out this episode. And I've been pretty excited for it. Uh, so uh, you might notice that the uh, sound quality or uh, the sound of my voice is maybe a little bit different, and that's because here, uh, where I'm staying currently, I don't have my typical uh, microphone and sound rig and stuff uh, for recording. I'm literally recording this on my iPad in a bedroom with the iPad propped up on a pillow, so... I apologize if it doesn't sound professional, but it should be perfectly clear, and I think it's going to be a great episode. Uh, This episode is called New Year's Resolutions for DJs, and I put resolutions in quotation marks. The reason I do that is because I don't mean resolutions in the sense that I want to lose 20 pounds is a New Year's resolution, or I want to play more DJ gigs. Uh, but rather, this is actually like a Q&A version of the podcast. So I'm trying to provide resolutions or solutions, I guess, to listener questions. I happen to have six questions um, that were left as voicemails for me to answer for you. Um, this is something that I offered up to my VIP list, uh, which is basically my email newsletter I call it a newsletter, but it's not so structured as that. It's really just a way for me to stay in touch with my most valued listeners and to kind of deliver my random brain droppings as they relate to DJing. Um, If you are interested in signing up for that and for, uh, you know, being able to keep up with these kind of deals that I make with my uh, VIP list members go ahead and go to passionatedj.com, and up on the sidebar, there's a little sign-up form where you just put in your first name, your email address, and click submit, and that's it. I don't spam you. I don't try to sell you any, you know, sell you a bunch of stuff. I just, it's a lot of fun. I really like interacting with you guys, and and basically the deal that I made was that uh, anybody that contacted me within a certain range of time, I think it was seven days, and left me a voicemail to answer on the podcast, I would uh, do so, obviously, I would answer it, and I would also review any mix of their choosing. Um, uh, The idea being that it's difficult to get useful feedback on DJ mixes. There's so many floating around out there. It's hard to get people to listen to it, let alone tell you anything besides, hey, great mix, man, or this wasn't really up my alley, that sort of thing. Um, I offered to to give a few paragraphs of what I really think of honest, detailed feedback. Um, Not that I think my opinion is particularly valuable, uh, you know, more than anyone else's, um, but I just kind of as a, you know, a service or a thank you for uh, giving me content for the podcast, you know, it's the reason that I'm able to do this episode. And, uh, you know, I just know how hard it is to uh, 
to get any kind of useful feedback. So uh, that was the offer I made, and these are questions that I have called from that offer. Um, but first, uh, let's go over some things that have happened in 2014. Uh, it was kind of a big, big year for DJing, I, I tend to think. Uh, we got the the first uh, CD-less CDJ from Pioneer, which was kind of a thing that uh, a lot of us suspected was a long time coming and possibly overdue. Um, speaking of Pioneer DJ, they were sold to KKR for $551 million. We started seeing screens on directly on controllers. We got the Control S8 and the Newmark NV. Um, trying to give people an option to maybe push their laptop off to the side or close the lid. Because um, a lot of people get concerned about this whole, uh, you know, screen staring, what they call Serato face thing. And companies are trying to find ways to provide options to people who don't like that, that glow right in their face. At least they can focus their attention, you know, directly on the mixer where their hands are. So it's kind of nice that, uh, you know, these companies are starting to, to dig up solutions for these kind of issues. Uh, there was lots of controversy surrounding SoundCloud and their business tactics. Uh, the DTJ-SZ came out and showed us, you know, basically what a pro-grade club standard controller should look like. Uh, not saying that that's going to happen and we're going to see those in big clubs all over the world, but... Um, it was it was a really good example of uh, a higher end all in one unit, uh, which I thought you know even though it was very pricey, I thought that that was uh, cool to see that show up in the scene. Uh, Reloops Beatpad came out, and that's probably the first high quality controller solution that I've ever seen for iPads. So you're kind of starting to see this is kind of the new uh, you're not a real DJ thing where it started out with playing CDs and you're not a real, CD, uh, a real DJ if you're playing CDJs and then you're not a real DJ if you're using laptops. Well, now we're on to tablets and tablets are, uh, for better or for worse, becoming a more viable option for DJs as um, tablets become more computer-like and computers become more tablet-like it only makes sense that this is going to start coming together. Uh, Virtual DJ offered up uh, a free DVS engine that works with uh, quote-unquote any DJ audio interface and existing timecode, which is pretty huge. Uh, DVS has been a pretty large barrier of entry for those who want to use timecode uh, for a lot of people. It costs a lot to get something like a... Uh, Tractor Audio DJ 10 or a uh, Serato enabled mixer and you know get the time code records or CDs f from those companies and Virtual DJ is saying hey use whatever you want bring it to us and we'll translate this into transporting time code uh, use whatever you want here it is it's free uh, which I thought was was pretty big bold move from Virtual DJ uh, from Atomics rather so uh, yeah, lots of lots of cool things happening in 2014. So it's really it's I'm kind of excited to see where we're gonna go in 2015. Um, what kind of new equipment we're gonna see? What kind of new controversies there will be? And what problems equipment manufacturers think that exist that they're gonna try to solve? This is obviously called the New Year's resolutions show. Resolutions for DJs. And even though I'm not talking about uh, resolutions in the traditional sense, I'm trying to help you resolve issues that you have. I will mention that last year around this time, I uh, sent out, I think it was an email to the VIP list, and I said something about my New Year's resolution, and I don't typically do resolutions, but I was trying one this year, and that was to complete two full tracks per month. Um, as a producer, so it was not exactly DJ related, but, um, and just in the interest of being perfectly transparent and open with you, I failed miserably on that resolution. Um, I started out pretty good. I did get a couple tracks completed. I didn't really release anything, but I, I mentioned that because, uh, just because I didn't exactly accomplish that particular goal, 2014 was huge for me. 
Um, I, I had a, a whole bunch of life-altering events as it relates to DJing and just life in general. I quit my day job. Uh, my fian- I got engaged. My fiancé and I started a business together, which is now paying the bills and negating the need for me to look for another day job. Um, I've built uh, the traffic of the blog up pretty well. Um, and then there towards uh, fall of this year, I ran into a couple of uh, kind of tragic events that really threw things off for me for a while. And uh, that was, uh, you know, I had family members in the hospital for heart problems. Uh, my grandmother, in particular, who almost didn't survive, just spent her first day back home on Monday. Uh, super proud of her for that. My sister began having seizures, and we had a family member pass away on my fiance's side of the family. So it's really, there was there was kind of a rough patch in there. But what I was pleased to see was that with you guys in particular, uh, my readers and listeners, you guys, even when I kind of had to go off the grid for a little bit uh, just to handle all my family stuff, you guys were there the entire time, still sending me emails. Traffic didn't dip whatsoever. Um, I was still getting listens. I was still getting comments. I was still getting interaction from you guys. And that was super cool to see that um, that you guys are, are here and you're sticking around. Uh, means a lot to me, probably more than, than you guys will ever know. So thank you so much for that. Um, and it was also nice to see that um, kind of the freedom that uh, my fiance and I have have built into our lives as far as our uh, scheduling our time um, from starting our own business and that sort of thing um, really came in handy uh, during all this and was kind of uh, proof that we're going in the right direction. So things are going really well for me. Um, I'm kind of the eternal optimist, but uh, even so, I'm really looking forward to 2015, and I hope you guys are too. So. Let's move on to the first question. Um, I apologize for all the rustling around. I've just got notes here in front of me, and you're going to hear everything on this little iPad mic. So, But uh, this uh, first question is coming from Raymond Vasmout. Hi, David. Uh, this is Raymond Vasmout. Um, I'm also known as uh, DJ Rebel Venture when I'm up on stage, and my question is, uh, when it comes to organizing your music in your library, um, is there any right or wrong way of doing it, and how much does it matter in the long run? Um, I'm having issues with uh, maintaining, a, I guess, the uh, energy in my set, and uh, recently I've been trying to go over my tracks and trying to organize them in a way that it'll be more streamlined when it comes to track selection. So I guess that uh, all kind of ties in for me, and I was wondering if I could get an answer. Thank you so much. Okay, so Raymond asks, is there a right or wrong way to organize your music library, and does it matter in the long run? The quick answer to that is no, there is not a 100% right or wrong way. But yes, it does matter. <laughs> so let me explain. Um, just because there isn't a, like a definitive 100% answer, here's how you should organize your library, doesn't mean that it's not important. Uh, the important thing is finding that method that works for you and your workflow, your particular sound. It's it's going to vary, you know, de- depending on your style, the genre of music you play, the types of gigs you play, and uh, just what kind of workflow resonates with you. Essentially, what I would say is if you feel like your current system is hindering you, Raymond, um, it's worth considering changing or enhancing it. If it ain't broke, don't fix it is is what I'm saying, but you said something about uh, staying streamlined and, and maintaining energy. I have some recommendations on that. It's, it's definitely worth uh, trying new methods on smaller playlists. Uh, so in other words, if you're, you're not 100% sure what the solution is, the best way to organize your library, what I would do is start with a smaller subset of your library. So if you're using uh, Tractor or Serato, for instance, create a a new playlist um, or crate or whatever you want to call it and for a specific purpose. Uh, Not necessarily like a particular show that you're playing, but the idea is breaking your library into smaller, like more digestible chunks. So that could be 
genre of music, so maybe you'll just start like a techno playlist or, or whatever it is that you want to play. Uh, some people like organizing by uh, the dates that they purchased or acquired the music, and they just group them that way, uh, especially a lot of people who uh, are or were using CDs in a, like a CD wallet. I know a lot of people would just mark those by date because um, organizing it any other way was really quite a daunting task. <laughs> I wouldn't make it too specific or limited. In other words, um, I, I don't think that you should necessarily just create like January 1st, 2015 playlist because that you're, you're playing a gig. That, I'm not try, tar, trying to get you to plan out an entire set. I'm just trying to get you to break your library down into more digestible little chunks so that you can try things out and you can manage it better. So what I would do for, I, I use techno as an example. I have a techno playlist and I also have one, I have two playlists that are called Crate. One is Crate Dance and Crate uh, Chill. And so those are playlists that I've created for different potential scenarios. I did that because I play percussive techno very differently than I play, say, lounge music. So I've broken those out into their individual playlists. They're kind of evergreen, meaning they're, I, I, they're reusable. I can come back and use that techno playlist anytime. It's not specific to a gig or a venue. But it's um, better than trying to work with you know thousands of songs in my entire library. Uh, what you could do is take that smaller chunk that you've created, let's say my techno playlist, and then use the, uh, like Tractor, for example, has a ratings field in the uh, library list. And you can give it anywhere between zero and five stars to rate the song, uh, kind of like iTunes or whatever, Amazon. Which, I, for a long time, I ignored that feature because uh, why would I want to play anything less than a stellar song? Why would I have a bunch of one and two star songs sitting around? That seemed kind of silly to me. So what a lot of people do is instead of using it as a gauge of how much you like a song, is they use it to assign an energy level to that song. So in my techno playlist, some of my more minimal, uh, laid-back kind of techno, I might give a one or two star rating. My middle-of-the-road energy-building stuff, I might give a three, and then my full-on bangers, my peak moments of my set, I'll give those four and five star rating. And so that allows me to look at my playlist and immediately see what energy level I've assigned to these tracks. So if I'm, if I'm looking out at my crowd, my audience, and I see that there's, um, I need to pick up the energy a little bit or I, maybe I need to slow it down a little bit, I make that determination and then I look, I, I sort my, um, that playlist by rating and I can kind of direct my set from there without having necessarily a specific track in mind. It, keep, it keeps things fresh, it keeps me on my toes, and I'm still selecting something on the spot. Um, but it gives me uh, just that tool to look in the right place. Um, there is a caveat with this, me this method, though, and that is that, at least in Tractor, uh, ratings do carry across playlists. So if I have my techno playlist and then I have the same song in my, my dance music crate playlist um, and I assign this a four-star rating, it's going to have a four-star rating in, in any playlist. And I might not consider that to be a higher energy track in the context of a different playlist. The context really plays a role here. Uh, a minimal techno track can sound very laid back in a particular context. It could sound uh, a little bit crazy in another. So that's something to be mindful of. It's not a perfect system, um, but I think it's enough to kind of get the wheels turning um, and gives the idea of uh, one way you might be able to kind of streamline your process. You could also use your comments field um, to get a little more specific if you wanted to. But that's kind of the way that I've been handling it lately. I've been toying with this idea of just assigning ratings and then uh, still trying to keep it spontaneous while operating within whatever energy level I think I should be at. Um, some general tips for you, Raymond. Um, knowing your music equals confidence. 
If you feel like you're having trouble maintaining energy, it could be partially a result of not knowing the track that you're deciding to play all that well. So uh, don't be afraid to uh, use music that you know well if you know the effect that it will have on your audience and if you um, think it will fit the context of your mix. The more you know your music, the better armed you are to make these kind of decisions. Try to adjust your energy level based on uh, like kind of social cues, uh, crowd reactions. That's the whole crowd reading part of DJing that we always talk about. So if you're looking out and people are reacting to, if you add a little more and they dig it, and then you add a little more and they dig it, you bump things up energy level and they like it, keep going with it. If you look like you're wearing them out, you can bring it back down a little bit, get back into a groove, grab their attention, and this kind of star rating system gives you a mechanism to do that. Um, but just try not to be too planned about it. And um, I think a lot of people in your position, they feel like they have trouble maintaining energy. They do one of two things. Either they try to slam out all their banger tracks, which is probably the most common scenario, especially amongst younger or newer DJs, or they try to entirely plan out their set and then they just play it straight through which is uh, the opposite of fixing the problem that you're bringing up. <laughs> you're, you're basically fixing yourself into a uh, playlist which is not going to change uh, based on crowd reaction, and it could be awesome or it could completely flop, but I like to, to be prepared for that scenario where you can pivot and change the music if you need to, and that's just something that comes with experience. So I hope that that was useful for you, Raymond. Um, keep on at it, and I would love to uh, get an email back from you and uh, let me know if you use this method or if you found another one that works for you. Uh, would love to explore any other methods that people have out there for uh, maintaining energy and uh, just organizing their, their music better. So our next uh, question for today comes uh, from Ian. Hi David, I'm, my name's Ian and I'm DJ Brownie, I think I've spoken to you before. How important is harmonic mixing and mixing in key? Because I think it's a load of bollocks, basically. You should go with your instinct and choose the next tune. You should not follow a computer's instruction on nothing. Cheers mate, but how important is it? That's what I'm thinking. Thank you, bye. Okay, Ian asks how important harmonic mixing is. He thinks it's a load of bollocks. Um, that's a great question because uh, harmonic, harmonic mixing is something I've been familiar with for uh, a number of years and is not something I force myself to do. Um, I don't find it to be especially important, especially if not for all types of DJing. Right? I mean, there's, there's a number of ways that, that people DJ I, I think that harmonic mixing is a tool for your uh, sort of DJ arsenal. I don't think it's a requirement. And the, the problem with harmonic mixing is that people tend to kind of be all in. Like they, it's, it's like an all or nothing thing. So instead of an, a, a tool that they can select from their toolbox and use at will, it's either... Uh, people tend to say, well, you should, I only mix harmonically or mix in key, in other words, um, or I completely disregard that. And uh, my approach is to have that available to you should you want to use it, but not force yourself to. My techno playlist is, it, it, this is almost an irrelevant question when it comes to me mixing techno, uh, because it's, it's beats and beeps. I mean, it's, you know what I mean? There's, there's maybe some tribal drums, and then there's a kick drum, and there's some hi-hats, and there's some synth parts here and there, but it's not a particularly melodic form of music, usually. Um, you get too melodic, and things that if you're a trance, purely a techno you know, DJ, or, then or progressive, uh, so this is completely irrelevant to you, you might disregard. Um, but the trance DJ, uh, this can be extremely useful, because... Uh, trance is so melodic, and a lot of it is, is very vocal and, and um, I guess, poppy these days. And so trying to 
if you are a trance DJ, but you want to be able to mix in and out of tracks more quickly instead of just doing A to B mixing and playing out a full song and then mixing the intros and outros together of 32 bars and then going to the next one, that can get kind of boring. Whereas if you have harmonically compatible tracks, in other words, tracks that are in the same or compatible keys, then you're able to maybe uh, mix in earlier, uh, mix in during a breakdown, um, that sort of thing. So I've kind of, on my notes here, I've got a list of pros and cons of harmonic mixing. Uh, here are the pros. It can be like creating an entirely new song or feeling. So uh, when you mix two tracks together and they're in a compatible key and they're both playing their own individual melodies, it can almost be like uh, you're creating a new song on the fly because, because it's um, those melodies kind of intertwine they resonate with each other and it, it kind of creates this almost new product out of it which can be uh, pretty cool. It's uh, very satisfying which is my next item on the list. It's, uh, it's fun when you find a harmonic mix and you nail it and it sounds awesome, it sounds like a completely new track. I don't know, it's, it's like that same sense of accomplishment that you get when you, when you learn how to beat match on records and then you, you pull off that first flawless mix and everything is just perfectly razor sharp, and you just get that sense of accomplishment. It's the same kind of thing with harmonic mixing. Um, it's useful for quicker mixing of melodic content. We already went, kind of went over that. Um, and it's not just key mixing. Uh, it, you can also use this as a, sort of a psychological tool. So, for example, there's this thing called modulated mixing, which is uh, you jump uh, like... For example, jump two semitones, and you just keep, so with each track that you bring in, you jump two semitones, and that might not make sense to you if you don't know music theory, but um, there's also the uh, the mixed-in-key Camelot system. You can look these things up. If you go to mixedinkey.com, they've got all kinds of information about this, but the uh, modulated mixing is when you, you jump a couple semitones, and then it gives you a feeling of uh, progression, like you're building energy even if you're not building... Uh, tempo, for example. This is kind of a silly example, but if you listen to, say, like a Celine Dion song, um, when she's singing, and then at the end of the song, or like sometimes Mariah Carey does this, or Janet Jackson, some of these like uh, pop stars, where they'll sing a song in a key, and then the key changes, and it gets a little bit higher, and sometimes they'll get a little bit higher and a little bit higher, and the song is the same, but the key keeps increasing a little bit. It gives this feeling of progression and building energy without actually, you know, adding a bunch of busy stuff to the track. And that can be used as a tool for your dance floor as well. There's also harmonic scratching for uh, those of you who are hip-hop DJs or into turntablism. Listen to the classic Herbie Hancock song, Rocket, for examples of that. You can kind of create these... Uh, scratching parts that are in key along with the song that's playing and then it's almost like sampling um, but it doesn't sound completely out of place it just really opens up a lot of doors but uh, harmonic mixing is not without its problems uh, so my list of cons the very top uh, item on the list is that it's limiting if you are stuck in this idea that you have to mix harmonically and you're only looking at tracks that are harmonically compatible with whatever you're playing, you might pass up on a track that would be perfect for the scenario, for the context that you're in, but you completely disregard it because it's not mixed in key, or it's not in a compatible key with what is currently going to the PA system. And I don't think that, uh, I think that limitation inspires creativity, but I don't think that you should disregard something just out of some arbitrary rule. So like I said, this is a tool, this is not a requirement. It fools you into thinking that the next song is the right choice because it's compatible, quote-unquote. Uh, sometimes people like a little bit of dissonance. In other words, um, th there's a certain level of, when I say dissonance, maybe just a, a slight key clash or something on an incoming track that's maybe not too offensive, but just lets you know something else is happening. And sometimes people really like that. It adds a sense of tension to the mix. And uh, you lose that 
I won't say entirely, but it, it makes it uh, harder to do that when you're mixing harmonically. Back when uh, Tiesto, for example, was was considered a trance DJ, he was one of the top trance DJs, uh, doesn't play that so much now, but he did that a lot. He would mix uh, tracks together, and he would bring in the bass line of another track that was not quite in key, but he would do it on purpose, and it still worked. And it just it made you feel a little tense, but also excited that something was coming in, things were changing. So it's it's that kind of thing. It's a tool. It's not a requirement. And bottom line, if it sounds good, it is good. So just go with it. Um, but if you don't feel like uh, mixing harmonically at all, you know that's your prerogative. Do what works for you, and do what sounds best for you and your sets. So, our next question comes from Joseph. Hi, David. Thank you again for everything that you do. I very much appreciate and enjoy your blog and podcast. My question is about priorities and sound quality. Like you, I'm passionate about what I do and how I sound. I've also been fortunate enough to hear some really incredible sound systems and know how good they can get. Like in everyone, I've also heard some terrible ones. With very few exceptions, DJ gear and computer-based DJ gear in particular fall firmly into the good enough category. It doesn't matter in most club systems or most portable PA gear, but if you're lucky enough to play in a really nice system or to invest in one yourself, the difference becomes subtle but audible. At what point does it become worthwhile to invest in higher-end sound equipment that is larger and more cumbersome? Thanks for listening to my mix. I hope you enjoyed it, and I look forward to listening to the podcast. Best wishes. Okay, thank you for your question, Joseph. At what point does it become beneficial to invest in high-end sound? Well, uh, it depends. Uh, and not to give you a cop-out answer, but let's think about this. Uh, Steve Aoki, John Digweed, uh, even your favorite local uh, quote-unquote heavy hitter DJ, you know, your popular locals, they might not have any reason at all to have a sound rig like that um, because they're provided for them wherever they play. So it's, I mean, it's really going to vary on the particular scenario that you're in. Uh, your local DJ promoter or, say, mobile DJ business owner, like uh, if, you, if you own a company doing wedding gigs, uh, they may have every reason in the world to have a big sound rig. If... The question is, at what point does it become beneficial to you to be able to hear this big sound and play on it? This may be an unpopular opinion, but I happen to think that a large, uh, like cumbersome sound system is overrated, uh, at least as far as the utility it provides to a DJ. For a DJ, what's important is good monitoring, which involves clear sound that is loud enough Clear, loud sound is important for the DJ, whereas big, banging sound is important for the party. So it really depends on what you've made your responsibility. I don't think that that a large sound system is at all a requirement to become a better DJ. I think, uh, well, first of all, a large sound system, quote-unquote, uh, is that's a pretty relative term. Uh, what's large? Um, that could kind of mean anything. I mean, are we talking about enough to throw a stadium gig or enough to fill a medium-sized room. You know, it, this is all kind of relative to the kind of gigs you play, if you do any promotion or uh, provide your own sound, if you're a mobile business DJ owner. Um, as far as the, uh, I guess, the experience of playing on large systems, if you've got the money, you can certainly duplicate that big sound. You can buy whatever rig you want and set it up in your basement or whatever, but you can't necessarily duplicate a big room. And your environment is everything when it comes to that. So if, you, if your concern is that um, you want to have experience playing on bigger sound rigs because you want to be prepared for playing on bigger venue, uh, sound rigs and bigger venues, that's understandable, but you're not going to be able to simulate that anyway because all those scenarios are different. Some of them, the DJ booth is right down in the middle of the action. Some of them, it's off on the side somewhere. Reverb is going to be a huge issue for large warehouses or arena-style venues. Um, it's going to sound, you know, the same sound system is going to sound way different in a, uh, a cathedral versus a uh, basement, for example. So it's, you can't really duplicate that environment anyway. 
so I wouldn't sweat it if that's the reason you want to buy uh, a big mega sound system. A lot of people, uh, I have a lot of DJ friends who they they like having a pretty decent size rig at their at their home just so that they can monitor properly. And uh, I get that, but I don't think that you need to go crazy. My suggestion is to buy big enough sound. So in other words, um, it, it doesn't have to be completely uh, complex or unruly system. Just a loud, clear sound for you know a decent sized room. For example, I've got uh, a pair of QSC 12-inch uh, tops in my garage, which is where I do all my mixing. And uh, I'm going to add a sub to that. And that's it. And that's going to be, I mean, the sound that that will put in my garage is huge. And is I, I, I'm not going to get any better. There's no reason for me to put a huge Function 1 system in my garage for that, unless I'm throwing, like, concerts. I do have a suggestion, and that is, if, and if your concern is uh, your ability to mix on various sizes of audio system, learn to mix in your headphones. Uh, this is what I do. A lot of people, you know, a lot of DJs will mix uh, with one, you know, like say the left cup of their headphones on their left ear, and then they'll leave their right ear open, and they'll listen to whatever the, the closest monitor is. Uh, that's kind of the traditional way to do it, but I like actually doing all my mixing in my headphones, at least when I'm initially queuing tracks up and stuff, because that entirely eliminates the environment and um, acoustics from the equation. My headphones, when they're on my head and sealed around my ears, sound exactly the same in a bedroom that they do in a concert hall, that they do in a warehouse, that it does at the local nightclub or a small dive bar. It always sounds like my headphones. I don't ever have to worry about, oh, there's too much reverb in here, the sub isn't loud enough, that sort of thing. I've got a consistent monitoring environment, and I carry it with me. So I'm not saying that that's something that you have to do. Not everybody likes that, but I love it because it's so consistent. And uh, you'll, you'll kind of find your own way to... Um, to accomplish that, a lot of mixers have split cue, where you have uh, one track in the left ear and one in the right ear. Uh, the way I like to do it is using a, a cue mix knob. It's something that most mixers have by now, which is um, you have a knob and all the way to the left is uh, the master output and all the way to the right is whatever you have selected uh, as your track that you're cueing. Um, and so that way I can kind of blend between the two. I'm always twiddling that cue mix knob, personally, because I can kind of bring things in and out and hear exactly um, how well the tracks are aligned, what they sound like, and I can cut it out and bring it back in and just preview it in all these different ways to, you know, whatever perfect uh, volume uh, allows me to hear all that stuff properly. So what I like to do as well is uh, try to focus on the highs instead of the lows. So uh, the, the reason I do that is because subwoofers are loud, they're impactful, they're the most obvious thing, they're the thing that you feel, and the, uh, DJs tend to beat match or to um, pay the most attention to their low frequencies, their kick drum, the boom, boom, boom. They use that as their timer, their metronome. But it's actually a lot more accurate to listen to your higher frequencies, um, your shorter wavelengths, in other words. So your hi-hats, your cymbal crashes, those sort of things. It's, it's a lot easier to hear if that sort of hi-hat sound. It's easier to hear if those are lined up with each other than it is a big pounding long tail kick drum. The subs are deceiving. And you can you can kind of tell that this is a thing. Next time you're at um, uh, a larger event, try standing outside the building and maybe with the door open and notice how the drum beat sounds off time. The further away you are from the, uh, the venue sound, the more that it sounds like the, the sub or the, the kick drum is playing off beat. And it's not necessarily playing offbeat. It just sounds like that because it gets to your ears at a different time uh, due to the long wavelength of the sound of something like a kick drum. 
whereas you hear the, the hi-hats and cymbal crashes and stuff right away. And so, um, you know, putting those that monitoring environment right around your head in your earphones and listening to those highs is, uh, if you can get used to doing that and you're okay with that, it really eliminates all these other problems. Now, the, the other thing about it is if you do want to get a bigger sound rig, uh, something that you want at home, because uh, I do get the appeal of that. I have one myself. Powered tops and subs are your friend. So uh, your concern was that you didn't want to get too complex and, and that sort of thing. But um, my QSC top speakers and you know connecting a sub, it, it's a power cable to the wall, an audio cable to the mixer, and I'm done. The, the sub connects to one of the tops if you add a sub, and that's it. There's no amp, there's not a bunch of weird wiring, there's, you don't have to worry about any of that crap, it just works right out of the box. And even when I play smaller shows, mine are, mine are good enough to do a two or three hundred person venue easily uh, if you pair it with a sub. It's so easy I, to, to set up. I can show up, I put them on my stands, I plug them in and I go. And uh, it, it really just saves a lot of time having all that uh, that stuff self-powered. You don't have to fool with all that. So just a suggestion, uh, something to use at home and for smaller gigs. Uh, I'm a big, big proponent of uh, self-powered speakers all the way. Next question comes from Brian Liu. Hey, Passionate DJ Podcast. My name is Brian, and I've been DJing since about 95, 96, but more seriously since 07, 08. And my question is, now that I have some experience doing a variety of gigs from clubs to in-stores to weddings and different mobile gigs, what do I need to do to turn my DJing into a legit business? So I'm looking into filing for a DBA, doing business as, and also should I look into liability insurance, theft insurance, and stuff like um, uh, filing taxes and any information related to that sort of thing would definitely come in very handy for me. Uh, you can check me out at soundcloud.com forward slash DJ Blues. That's DJ B-L-U-Z. And I thank you for your help. Keep doing your thing. All right. Great question, Brian. Thank you. Uh, so Brian wants to know how to turn DJing into a legitimate business. Brian, I actually hesitated to answer this one because, well, I'll just give you the disclaimer. Um, I am not a lawyer. I have never run a full-time DJ business. So I don't want to give you any bad advice. The laws are going to vary by location, and I'm not sure where you live, but uh, it's it's going to vary greatly, and many of uh, these laws and uh, tax rules and things are kind of gray areas. So I, I don't want to give you any bad advice. So please, please, please um, look into this stuff elsewhere. Talk to a professional if um, you have any questions about this stuff. Do not take my word for it because um, I'm, I'm attempting to give you advice, but I am not an expert on this. Um, so that being said, it, it kind of depends. I don't know what kind of DJing business that you're referring to um, because this sort of thing is probably a more common scenario for like a mobile DJ business uh, for you know doing uh, weddings and that sort of thing where you come in, you provide your own sound, you set up a booth, you MC. Uh, you play music, take requests, uh, that sort of thing. Um, you're like an, a one-stop shop. You've got uh, mobile sound rig and all that kind of thing, and uh, you want to be a, an actual business. It, this can apply to club or bar DJs, but usually you're kind of a hired uh, service that's being hired out by the venue owner or promoter or whatever, so it doesn't exactly apply the same way. So I hope I'm not getting too specific for your particular scenario, but I, I actually uh, reached out to a few people about this, and not all of them have gotten back to me yet because I'm, I'm doing this so uh, last minute. So I will uh, email you back or uh, possibly uh, come back to this in the next episode. But um, I did uh, talk to Josh Meinhart, who is, uh, he lives in Cincinnati, Ohio, and uh, he's a friend of mine, and he owns Kinetic Concepts, or he's uh, a part owner, I think, of Kinetic Concepts there in Cincy. I asked him this question to see um, what his experience was. 
And he said that for him, up to $2,000 is covered on his homeowner's insurance as far as uh, equipment and that sort of thing. I don't know exactly what all that covers. You should talk to your own insurance agent about that kind of thing um, if you're a homeowner. Um, it could also possibly be covered under uh, renter's insurance. Uh, like I said, I'm not an expert on this, but for him, up to $2,000 is covered on his homeowner's insurance. Uh, beyond that, you would need some kind of policy to cover um, a theft or damages or whatever beyond that amount. Which $2,000 really is not much. I mean, that's, you know, a MacBook. So definitely something to keep an eye on. He says that business liability possible, uh, I'm sorry, business liability policy to cover your ass just in case is definitely advisable. This covers uh, cases where something happens to somebody or somebody accuses you of causing a loss for some reason. And this, uh, this is a, definitely a cover your ass policy. Uh, and he does recommend that. Uh, taxes, he says you just need to file it as added income unless it's less than $600. Once again, this is going to vary greatly by location. I'm just giving you the experience of one person in Cincinnati, Ohio. And he says uh, forming an LLC can help protect you too. Now, I do know a little bit about forming an LLC. Um, not as it relates to, to DJing specifically, but I have formed an LLC before and I am currently a business owner. I'm working on forming an LLC again uh, for the business that uh, I mentioned earlier with my uh, fiance. The LLC kind of allows you to pay taxes as an individual so that not much changes there, but uh, it gives you the protections of a corporation. So in other words, so uh, let's make up a scenario. Um, you have a you're throwing an event, and a stack of speakers falls over and whacks somebody in the head, and they get a concussion or whatever, um, and they sue you. The idea is that the LLC, if you have an LLC, they're suing the company. They're not suing you as an individual. So they can only sue you for business um, assets and money. So they, they can't, uh, for example, come and take your home if you can't pay the medical bills uh, because the home is owned by David Michael instead of uh, David Michael DJing Services LLC, uh, if, if that makes any sense. So an LLC or some kind of uh, uh, corporation like that uh, could be an option. Uh, depending on where you are, you might be expected to file and submit like estimated quarterly taxes. You know, it's, it's kind of hard to say, and I, I definitely... Um, if you're moving enough money to where this is a question, in other words, if this is your primary source of income, um, you should hire a CPA. You should hire an accountant to handle a lot of this stuff and figure it out for you because an accountant uh, not only helps to keep you legal, but they will help you keep more money in your pocket in a way that is legal. <laughs> Phil Morse of Digital DJ Tips wrote uh, an article that touched on this a little bit, and here's a quote from his article. He says, This is why many DJs like to keep it as a hobby or go semi-pro, where they make extra pocket money but keep a day job. Just remember, though, that the tax man doesn't care if it's a hobby or not. If you're getting paid, he wants to know. So definitely something to keep in mind. But, uh, you know, an accountant would help you uh, find potential write-offs like uh, uh, gas mileage to and from events, uh, equipment, web hosting, promo materials, your music. All those things might be able to be written off and uh, help you keep more money in your pocket while keeping you legal. So my best advice is to talk to somebody more qualified to answer than me, but hopefully that gives you a place to start. And when I get uh, more, if I get more responses from other people I contacted about this who have more experience with it, I will definitely pass on the information. So thank you very much, Brian, for that question. Our next question is from Thiago. Hi, David. I'm Thiago from Brazil, soundcloud.com, Thiago Arcari. And I just moved overseas to New Zealand. It's kind of hard the music scene here, I, but I finally got a jig. The thing is that the manager is asking me to play very commercial songs. How can I get over this? Like, it seems like the, the clubs here just play commercial songs, so the crowd seems to respond to that. But I am preparing a set with a little bit more popular music, 
but I can't really pay just play just that. So I'm wondering, what's your advice? Okay, thank you very much for that question. So uh, he wants to know. He says that clubs in New Zealand uh, want and respond to popular music, uh, and he wants to know how he can play more non-commercial gigs. So uh, your heart lives in the underground. Uh, believe me, I understand that. Um, I have no idea what nightlife is like in New Zealand. And every scene and location is going to be different, obviously. Um, in the, the previous episode, my, my co-host Joe and I uh, talked a little bit about this. Uh, it's tough to answer because uh, all the answers that I want to give sound kind of cliche. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, well, you need to find your audience. You need to choose uh, appropriate gigs and venues in the first place. Uh, you need to forge your own path and that sort of thing. I, I don't want to um, to give you just a one-size-fits-all generic answer like that. Uh, that is part of it. One potential answer is to compromise. If you have a gig at a uh, bar or club that, you know, it's expected to hear uh, top 40 popular music, commercial music, that sort of thing. There was a guy here in Dayton who used to do this. He was just excellent at it. Uh, he would play those those hits, those expected tunes, and then he would he would kind of slide in what he considered the good stuff where he could get away with it. If you do that right, it's a great way to handle this issue because you, your crowd gets what they expect to hear. You get to do the kind of curator and music education thing by slipping these things in but not getting too carried away, and everybody's happy. Not everybody's willing to make that compromise, but for, for some DJs, that's the, the perfect scenario. You have to be a really good DJ to pull that off properly. So that's going to take a lot of practice and a lot of, uh, a lot of practice in that environment. So if you're going to do that, uh, you might ease into it and not try to go overboard with playing all the tracks that you just want to hear. Uh, because at the end of the day, the, the output and the reaction of the crowd and bar sales and that sort of thing are really what matters if you want to keep that gig. It requires you to sort of humble yourself and have like a... I guess, a give-and-take relationship with your audience. There's no 100% perfect answer to this, but uh, what I can tell you is how we did it here in Dayton. I've talked about my experience here in my hometown quite a few times. I, when I first got involved in this whole DJing show promotion thing, there was really nothing going on in Dayton. The scene was in a huge lull here. And uh, what uh, myself and a, a few other people around town did was we created our own nights at... Uh, venues that wouldn't miss them so we went to places that not necessarily were failing but just they had an available night they weren't really doing anything with it it wasn't like a big draw for them so they wouldn't miss it if we took a night to experiment with some of those nights uh, John Chapel's night for example which we talked about a few episodes back uh, is still going and it started this way and is, uh, you know, like I said in that episode, it's kind of the heartbeat of our scene here in Dayton. So this is definitely uh, a, a method that has worked for us. Besides that, we did a lot of marketing directly to our own DJs because uh, a lot of our audience consists of other DJs. So if you get all these other DJs involved, you give everyone a shot to play various uh, time slots, you get all these people involved, you know, if you've got a hundred people and they're all DJs in a room and they're all dancing and they're all into it, that's perfectly fine. Why not have a bunch of DJs who can appreciate what you're doing on that level? And once you have that many people in there, there's a natural progression that happens where, you know, one or two of those people bring one or two more people and then they bring them again next week and they bring somebody and that's how you start this exponential growth thing. So if you target people who have already bought into this, which are DJs, and get them all involved, it definitely helps to give you a boost in a scene which otherwise doesn't exist. You just have to find those like-minded people to collaborate with. Uh, another thing that we, we did and still do is to create house party environments that 
are fun and where our music fits in between notable uh, events. So, uh, I, I mean, house parties, they're trend-proof and recession-proof. The, the house party never really goes away, whether you have a scene or not. If you've got enough friends that are into the music and you have a space and some speakers, your underground will be maintained for as long as you wish. So, I mean, they're a great tool in, uh, in maintaining your underground during a slump like Dayton had when I first got interested in this stuff. Uh, so definitely house parties, don't underestimate them because uh, they will keep the party going when bars are unwilling. And then uh, my last uh, suggestion is to just grind. Keep trying. I mean, you can't just go to one or two popular college bars or whatever and get gigs there and not be able to play the music you want and then just give up and say, well, I guess I just can't be a DJ or I have to sell out. Um, there is a lot of this forge-your-own-path stuff that comes in here, and that's what we all had to do here in Dayton. We had to find venues that were underutilized. We had to find people and DJs who were underutilized and give them a place to come under this one umbrella of this music that we all love. Uh, it's not always going to be a popular, established nightclub. It could be uh, maybe, you know, the town you live in has a street fair every summer, or uh, like in Dayton, we have First Fridays and Urban Nights, these different local business stimulating kind of events that they throw annually. Get in where you fit in, man. Um, wherever you can find a spot that your music is appropriate and you get to play what you want, by all means, go for it. Uh, so that's my best suggestion there. Now we're down to our last question. This is from Alex. Hi David, some DJs play free. What do you think? I'm real DJs. Thanks. Alright Alex, great question to end this podcast. Alex asks what I think a real DJ is. Um, I'm guessing that this comes from my frequent complaint of how I, I get I get tired of people telling me that you're not a real DJ if you unless you do this or use that or play this or blah, 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 blah. As if, the, uh, you know, they're like the, the king of DJ decisions. I don't really know. It, it, <laughs> it's, it's a big ego thing, and that always bothers me. So Alex wants to know what I think a real DJ is. I actually have written a post along these lines uh, a while back, and I think as my response to your question, Alex, I'm just going to read that post. So it's called uh, Three Cheers for the Passionate DJ, and it goes like this. Three cheers for the DJ with an unending supply of curiosity, who doesn't ever cease looking for new ways to present beautiful music to a captive audience. A person who is willing to acknowledge that there is always more to learn, regardless of how skilled or how established they are. Hats off to the selector who realizes that it's not just about how he or she plays, but about what he or she plays and in what context. The DJ who prefers not to put ketchup on a steak, but to make a better steak. Output matters. Content is king. Context is God. Thumbs up to the professional who is equally concerned with the happiness of their audience as with their own. The business-minded individual who treats their fans with respect, their promoters like a friend, and their fellow DJs like a co-worker. Not because their only concern is their pocketbook, but because they want to uplift their scene and edify their peers. Here's looking at you, the humble person behind the booth who can't be bothered with ego, the music lover who has no inclination to be a diva, the gentleman or lady who wishes to be one leg of support amongst many. Props to the versatile one who is constantly adding new tools to their DJ arsenal in order to become a more well-rounded music selector. The motivated musician who pulls inspiration from all sources, whether directly relevant to their own scene or not. A true lover of music. Much love to the value-driven DJ who realizes that there are more ways to build worth and merit than the way that two tracks are blended together. Who realizes the difference between competence and distinction. High fives to the music presenter that realizes it isn't about forcing your own musical tastes onto an audience, but rather, it's about finding your audience and playing to them. 
the mature DJ whose primary goal is to find a common link between their own musical taste and the desires of the crowd they are playing to. Hip hip hooray to those of you who are leaders, not because you want followers, but because you have the drive and motivation to push yourself forward, to deliver a memorable experience, and to be an important branch of your own support network. Shine on, artists. Your attention to detail, your persistence, and your dedication to the craft are what keep the underground strong while the obnoxious mainstream has its 15 minutes again. Let nobody discourage or devalue what it is that you do or to diminish the things that you have to offer to those of us who need you. Big ups to the visionaries who realize that it's not about becoming as good as this person or that person. They realize that the proven way to add value is to do extremely difficult work. The craftsman who seeks out the most difficult parts to master and contributes in their own unique way. Three cheers for the passionate DJ. I hope you all have a happy, healthy, successful 2015. We'll see you again soon for episode 14. Don't forget to subscribe via SoundCloud at soundcloud.com forward slash passionate DJ. Join the VIP list at passionatedj.com and we'll see you next time. Take care, guys. Thanks for listening to the Passionate DJ podcast at www.passionatedj.com. Check out the fan page at facebook.com slash passionatedj or on Twitter at DJ with Passion. And always remember to keep on spinning.